0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Last week, uh, uh, Mark and I were at a, uh, a conference uh, for Wesleyan Christians. Uh, about uh, 2,400 or so of us gathered in, in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, had a wonderful time. Uh, one night, we were uh, worshiping, and uh, it came to part in the service where they're going to have us uh, recite the Apostles' Creed, and there was a, a, a technological uh, glitch and the words did not show up on the screen. We didn't have them printed in paper, and the worship leader was kind of standing there, not sure exactly what to do next when one man up in the balcony yelled out, I believe in God the Father. and and everybody, all 2,400 of us just joined in, and the more we said from memory, the louder and louder we got, and we got to the end, and the Holy Spirit came in this powerful way. In 40 years of being a pastor, I have never seen anything like it, that people got inspired by the Apostles' Creed, but it happened, didn't it? And it was a marvelous thing, and we were Privilege to be able to be there, but it is the very heart of who we are the Apostles' Creed. Some great truths that are contained uh, within it. Well, Leland Gregory, in his book entitled Stupid History, tells of a mistake that once occurred in the printing of some Bibles. In about the 1600s, King Charles I ordered a thousand Bibles from an English printer whose name was Robert Barker. And Barker inadvertently left out a single word in the seventh commandment. It was the word, not. (laughs) And the readers of this Bible were shocked to read, Thou shalt commit adultery. (laughs) But the king was not amused. Uh, he had all the Bibles destroyed. He fined Barker 300 pounds sterling and uh, revoked his printing license. He was out of business. But not all the Bibles were destroyed, 11 of them are still in existence. And because of the infamous mistake, this printing of the official King James Version is known as the Wicked Bible. <laughs> True story. Well, today we're in week five of our series called The Story, and we've learned that God's ori- original version of vision was to have this deep love relationship with His creation, But we discovered that by chapter 3, our free will had resulted in humanity choosing a a different vision, uh, quite apart from God. And so God began this restoration process to bring us back into a a love relationship with Him, and that God chose a couple, uh, Sarah and Abraham, and established a covenant or a promise that they would become the parents of this new nation, this new thing that God wanted to do. Well, the promise comes true, and Isaac is born. And Isaac, he grows up, he has twins called Jacob and Esau. And Jacob grows up, and he marries two sisters, Leah and Rachel. And before you know it, they have 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, the new name that Jacob receives when he wrestles with an angel. And Joseph, who is his father's favorite son, he ends up as a slave in Egypt through a series of unfortunate circumstances. But he soon rises to the top, and soon the whole family migrates there. And for the next 430 years, Egypt is their home, life is good. But a new king comes to power, and their situation becomes intolerable, and so God sends a man named Moses, who through a number of miracles is enabled to bring them out of Egypt. Three months later, they find themselves camping at the base of Mount Sinai, and I am reading from chapter 19 of Exodus, verses 3 through 6. And then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, God's vision for Israel is to be this holy nation. Uh, the word holy means simply to be set apart for a, a special purpose or mission, to, to be different, to be counterculture. And so God wants to use this nation to bring humankind back into this love relationship with himself. And so Moses goes, back to, goes down the mountain. He shares this with his people, and they respond, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will keep his commandments. We will obey them. And so Moses goes back up. And for 40 days, God begins to outline what this covenant relationship will look like. And from that, we get the Ten Commandments. We find them in Exodus 20. The first four guide their relationship with God. Uh, Israel was to pledge their allegiance to God above everything else in life. And they are not to have any other gods before him, not money, nor status, power, comfort, nothing. They were not to make any image and fall down before that image and, and worship it. And God is to be first in, in all things. And they were to reverence his name in all things. And they were to honor and worship God by keeping the Sabbath day holy. The rest of the commandments guided in how you treat other people honor your parents, uh, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie don't lust after things that are not yours they're simple they're to the point and they are an absolute necessity for any civil society to survive they seem simple but keeping them is so hard so while Moses is away getting more instructions from god things are not going well down below It seems they've grown tired of waiting around for Moses. And so this is what they say. Come, let us make gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, well, we don't know what has happened to him. And so they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, who's about to become their first high priest, and they say, do something, Aaron. And so Aaron says, well, give me all of your gold jewelry, and I will fashion it into an idol that you can worship. Already they have a new God. (laughs) Just a few days from saying, everything the Lord has said we will do, and suddenly they're off on their own direction. They're ready to break some more commandments, and so pandemonium breaks out. God says to Moses, you better go down. Things are not looking well. And as Moses and Joshua are descending the mountain, they hear this yelling and screaming down the camp below. Joshua thinks that a war has broken out, but Moses knows better. And when they arrive in camp, they see the golden calf, and Moses explodes in anger. He pulverizes the idol, and then he goes looking for his brother. Aaron, what in the world has happened? And I love his explanation. Don't be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And so I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. They gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. What a lame excuse. Wasn't my fault. They made me do it. I just threw the gold jewelry in the fire, and all of a sudden, out popped this golden calf. Pretty lame, don't you think? Except I've done the same thing, you know? Sometimes I try to shift the blame to somebody else, or sometimes, frankly, I've just out and out lied if I thought it would get me out of trouble. Well, the consequences are terrible. 3,000 people die. Moses drops to his knees in intercession for his people. He prays that, that God will have mercy, that God will forgive them. And he, he even offers himself as an atonement for their sin. He says, blot me out of the book that you have written. God, I will offer my life for them if you will spare them. Interesting. And They make a promise, we'll do whatever the Lord says. And a few days later, they are breaking every single commandment the Lord gave to them to follow. And Aaron correctly diagnoses the problem. He says, these people are prone to evil. And so how can they ever become a, a holy nation? How will they ever become a, a kingdom of priests that God wants them to become? Is there any hope that they can ever ever change. Well, not only did God give them the Ten Commandments up on the mountain, but He also gave specific instructions on exactly what the tabernacle would look like and and how their worship was to be conducted. You see, the tabernacle was to be the the center of, of community worship, for the, community, for, for, the, for the community, for the tribe. And it would remind them of two things. First of all, that the presence of God would always be with them and among them. And secondly, it would remind them of, of a means by which a sin, sinful people could approach a holy God. The tabernacle was, was simply a movable tent. And so the worshiper would enter uh, by a, a gate that would lead to a courtyard. And the first thing that you would see there would be uh, the altar. It was made out of wood and and covered with bronze. It was square-shaped, about five to six feet tall. And and there was a horn at each corner of the square where the the animal uh, to be sacrificed would be tied up. And so the worshiper brought their sacrifice to be killed and his blood to be poured out at the foot of this altar. Now imagine what it must have, have looked like. I mean, it didn't look like our worship today. They didn't come in and, and grab a nice cup of, of coffee and get a warm handshake from a greeter and, and get a program and, and then sit down in a nicely padded pew and listen to some wonderful music. <laughs> it would have been much different with the sound of animals bleating and, and all sorts of smells and blood. Lots and and lots of blood. The next thing the worshiper would see was a basin. It was also located in the outer court between the altar and and the entrance to the holy place. And it held water. And it was used by Aaron and his sons to, to wash their hands and feet before they went in to the next area, which was called the Tent of Meeting. And Exodus 30 tells us the consequences of not washing first before they went in. The penalty was death. That's how serious all of this was. You go past the basin, there was this other tent called the Holy Place. And inside this smaller tent, there was a a table for the bread and and the candlestick. And, And only the priests were allowed in this room. And then inside of that was a a thick veil that went into one more small tent, and that was called the Holy of Holies. And inside of that was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark symbolized for the Jewish people the very presence and and the holiness of God. It represented the, the true throne of God, which was in heaven. And there was only one day out of the year that this Holy of Holies, this Ark of the Covenant was seen, and that was the Day of Atonement, on the 10th day of the seventh month, this year, October the 8th. And the only person who ever went into that room was the high priest. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would, would spend the day fasting, and then he would remove his garments, and he would bathe himself in the basin and put on this plain white linen robe and he would lead a, a young bull and a ram into the outer court where he would confess his personal sins and then slaughter the bull. He would put the blood in a bowl and, and burn part of the bull on the bronze altar and then take some of the hot coals from the altar. He would move, move to the basin where he would wash his hands and feet and then he would go into the holy place. He would take some incense and put it uh, in his censer where the hot coals were burning. Facing the, the veil, he would go into the Holy of Holies. Uh, a, a rope was tied onto his ankle uh, just in case he was to die in the presence of God and the other priests could, could pull him out by the rope. So they didn't have to go in there either. In fact, bells would be sewn on the end of his robe so the other priests knew he was still alive if, if they heard the bells tinkling. He would dip his finger into the bowl of blood and he would sprinkle it there on the mercy seat and then seven times on the floor before the ark. He would leave the Holy of Holies And go on the outer court where there were two goats waiting for him. One of those goats was sacrificed and and then the other goat was called. Do you remember what the other goat was called? Yeah, the scapegoat. That's where we get the word. And the priest would confess the sins of the nation over the goat. And that goat would be led out of the tabernacle and, and then let loose in the wilderness. And in that, the sins of the nation were atoned for and forgiven. For another year. Once again, they were a holy nation. Why was all this necessary? Why all this blood and guts? It was to remind them that there had to be a t- that sin had to be atoned for by the shedding of blood. That sin has to be dealt with, that there had to be an atonement. There was just one problem. It was temporary. It didn't last. As hard as they tried to keep all the rules and regulations, they, they couldn't be this holy nation. They, they couldn't be this, this, this kingdom of priests. They failed over and over again. As hard as they tried to be countercultures, as hard as they tried to be different, as, as hard as they tried to be this, this different kind of community, they couldn't keep from becoming just like everybody else. But 2,000 years later, the New Testament writers would look at what Jesus had done on the cross and they would see the connection between that and and the Day of Atonement in the book of Exodus. The Apostle Paul says it this way in, in Romans 3, verse 25. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. Now, interesting, the Greek word for sacrifice of atonement literally refers to the cover on the Ark of the Covenant. And So this tells us that that Paul had in mind the Day of Atonement when the high priest would take some of the blood into the Holy of Holies on that day and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And so the writer of Hebrews looks back upon this, and in chapter 10 he writes this. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. Those were being made holy. So the New Testament writers looked upon all of this and they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of it all. That Jesus' death on the cross had done what the blood of bulls and goats could never do once and for all make us holy. You see, God is in the process of making us holy. We call that sanctification. That's a theological word which means to be set apart for a special purpose. And so just as God set the nation of Israel apart, God sets us, you and me, the church, apart for a special purpose. And basically... The word sanctification means becoming more and more like Jesus. It is the process of God at work within you, forming you into the image of Jesus. Now what does that look like? Well, Paul gives us a glimpse of this vision in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that list, I see how far short that I fall. But it also makes me hopeful that God has a vision for my life, something that I am becoming. And what I've discovered as long as I stay attached to Jesus, that I will grow into the likeness of Christ. I used to have two apple trees, in my yard, and when I moved in there, they were scrawny, insect-riddled apples that were only fit, really, to be thrown away, and so I decided to put the trees on a rehabilitation program. Uh, I, I pruned them. I sprayed them. I, I fertilized them. I, 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 I took care of them, and I, I invested a, a lot of time into it. And the next fall, Melinda and I picked nine bushel baskets full of good apples. I mean, we had apple pie in, until we got sick of it. I, I didn't know that was possible, but, but you could. I mean, we had homemade applesauce, and we had so many apples that if we'd see a car with a door open, we'd sneak a bag of apples in there, take them, take them. We can't, can't handle anymore. See, the trees were doing what they were designed to do bear fruit. And that's what God has designed you to do. See, I think God has each and every one of us today on this rehabilitation program. And God is working in your life. You may not even see it, but God is working and he's, he's pruning and he's fertilizing and, and he's spraying so that you too will begin to bear this fruit in your life so that you'll be able to be what God has designed you to be. And what's he designed us to be? Holy. And what is holiness? It's about being a loving person. A holy nation is a loving nation. A holy people is a loving person. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 22. A Bible scholar comes to him one day and he says, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Of all 613 commands and regulations that Moses received up on Mount Sinai, which is the greatest? And Jesus says, oh, that's a great question. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and your strength. That's the first one. And the second one is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God. Love others. Just two. See, here's the takeaway from this. God didn't create the Ten Commandments and then create human beings to keep them. God created people and then gave us the Ten Commandments to guide us in how we're to love God and how we're to love others. In, in John chapter 13, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. And he's eating a Passover meal with them and he says to them, a new command I give to you. They're all listening. They're all ears. Yes, what is this new command, Jesus? This must be something profound. What is it? Love one another. As I have loved you, that's how you are to love one another. And if you do this, everyone will know that you're my followers. If you love one another. So how do people know that you love God? How do people know that you're a Christ follower? How, do, how, how will they know that God is love? By how you live your life. See, a lot of times we think the most spiritual people are, are those who, who go off and isolate themselves in, in monasteries or, or other things. We think those are the spiritual elites, but folks, it's not so. Spiritual growth Spiritual maturity takes place as you and I learn to love like Jesus and you cannot do that except by being in relationship with other people. And so God brings other people into our lives to teach us how to love. You have to be around people. You have to be around irritating people. You have to be around frustrating people. You have to be around imperfect people if you want to grow in holiness. Now, my tendency is I want to avoid those people. I see them coming and I cross the street, try to avoid them. But God sends them into my life anyhow for me both to love and to help shape me into the kind of person that he wants me to become. James Needham tells the story of one day he was having breakfast at a local breakfast establishment. He noticed a, a man at a table next, next to him who was having a, a bagel with cream cheese, and this man, he says, was immaculately dressed, starched white shirt, perfect tie, um, immaculately groomed, including his perfectly groomed mustache. The man sat by himself and eating his bagel, and it looked like he was preparing for a meeting. He he reviewed the stack of papers before him, and he seemed nervous, and he kept glancing at his Rolex watch to see what, what time it was. I mean, it was obvious to Jim that he had this important meeting coming up, and he was getting himself ready. Jim says when he watched the man and and, and, and as he stood up and straightened his tie, Jim noticed that he had a a little blob of cream cheese on his mustache. He was impeccably dressed, ready to go into the world with cream cheese on his face. Jim thought maybe I should get up and, and tell him, warn him about this. But the man was out and gone before he, before he did. You see, we, we may try and pretend like we've got it all together. But we all got flaws, don't we? We're, we're messed up. The thing is, you don't have to be flawless to be holy. You don't have to be flawless to be used by God. God uses us despite our blemishes and, and our blunders. I thank God that sanctification is a process. (laughs) And here's how it starts. Here's what I want you to know today. That that whole process begins when we begin to understand how much God loves us. God loves us. And maybe that's an area where you struggle. I struggle sometimes. And I want to be more loving, but I find that there are things that are holding me back. And you want God to use you to help change the world. But the truth is, you can't even change yourself. So today, I want you to know this one truth, that God is madly in love with you. Today, I want you to receive that gift of love. And to know that when you leave this place today, that you are loved by Him. And when you discover that, when you begin to understand this truth, folks, it will begin to set you free like nothing else can do. To love God and to love each other. Let's pray. God, this journey is uh, a struggle oftentimes. We know we need to love you, we need to love others, but God, we have a hard time just loving ourselves. And to think that you love us No strings attached. Sometimes that just seems too much to believe. But we invite you to come. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us a glimpse of this vision of how much you love us right now in this place. And then God, give us a vision of where you want to take us. Use us, God. Use us, we pray. And let it begin today by knowing how much you love us. Amen.